Good morning, church. Great to see uh, those of you here in the room. Wish I could see everybody joining online, but uh, great to be gathered as God's people and to open God's Word together. We're back in Romans after uh, some time here, and I'm delighted to be uh, picking up our exposition of this book. We've been doing it, I believe, since uh, winter of 2017. And so we are back in it. We're in Romans 13. I'd like to begin by asking the question, what is it that families oftentimes say when they gather together for a Thanksgiving meal, other than let's eat? Uh, what do families often say? Something like this. Hey, why don't, why don't we have a nice time together? How about we agree that over this dinner, we are not going to talk about religion or politics? Your family ever done that or something like that? Maybe not because you all agree on these things. I don't know. But it's a common thing because we all recognize that those are two subjects that in our society are incredibly inflammatory, divisive. These are the most opinionated, the most rancorous subjects of all. And the reason for that is that uh, for human beings, this is where we so often place our faith and therefore our worship as well. You can tell you're getting close to the true God of somebody's heart when they're ready to throw down about it. And these days, people's politics is their religion. And here we are in, in, uh, in, in 2020. This means I'll have to edit it out of the radio broadcast, but <laughs> here we are in 2020. What's coming in like 100 days? The every four-year presidential election cycle. And what does that mean? I mean, it's, it's the same cycle every four years where our society has hopes for a new Messiah. And of course, they all prove terribly disappointing, do they not? And the reason for that is that we were not made, and this earth was not made, to be ruled by a human being. It was designed by God to be ruled by Jesus. And until he comes, this is the way it's going to be. By the way, that will be an absolute monarchy. If you're wanting to know what is God's design for the rule of the earth, ultimately it is an absolute monarchy with a perfect king on the throne. And that day is coming. But for now, what do we do? We live in this shattered Eden. We, we live with the, the, the shards of a shattered world, and it creates tensions for us as, Christ, as Christians because to be a Christian is to be in the kingdom of God and to seek first the kingdom of God, and we are about the things of God, and our hope is not in this world. Our, our eyes are in, in, in heaven and in the new earth, and Yet we live with one foot still in the kingdom of man, don't we? I mean, this is what it means to be a Christian, basically, is this. I got one foot in the kingdom of God. I got one foot in the kingdom of man. And that's hard, isn't it? Because it's not, the kingdom of God part isn't quite so hard. But the kingdom of man part is really hard. So hard. Because in this kingdom of man, we have such corruption. And we have such depravity. Now, Romans has taught us how we get a foot in the kingdom of God, and he, Paul spent 11 chapters explaining that salvation is by faith in Jesus Christ. We are justified by faith in Him, and we, we, we enter into the kingdom of God not by our own merits, but entirely because of what Jesus did for us on the cross, and so that is how we get into the kingdom of God, and that is underpinning Romans 13. 
But until we die, we will still live in the kingdom of man. And this is part of our challenge of being Christians remaining in this corrupt world where there is corruption on all levels and there is uh, sin, an abuse of power on all levels of government in all quadrants of the world, in every government of the world, down through human history, it's always been the same. As one person said, Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. You've probably heard that before. And indeed, there is the human heart can't, the sinful human heart can't adequately deal with power. We see this in big kingdoms like Russia or China. We see this in little fiefdoms like Liechtenstein or maybe your school's PTO or maybe your HOA, whoever it is. No matter where you find it, there's always problems. Sinners governing sinners sinfully. That's the kingdom of man. So we've, as Christians, God's people, we've always struggled with understanding what is the role of the Christian who is in the kingdom of God living in the kingdom of man. How do I relate to uh, human government? And what is the role of human government? And how should I view those authorities that are over us, whether it be a politician, a police officer, my boss, or my mom? How do I view what is a right relationship with authority? And this is where Paul goes now in Romans 13. In a very practical way, he explains what is this relationship. And we got to realize that governance is part of God's plan for this world. You might be an anti-government person. Uh, You may wish you could live in a cabin up in the UP somewhere and not pay your taxes and not worry about elections and shoot deer and, you know, live off the land. But that's not what Paul's going to encourage here, by the way. He has a much better way for Christians uh, to live. God has a governance plan, and that governance plan is in every sphere of creation. So we look at the most basic component of society, which is marriage and the family, and God has a governance plan for it. We find a governance plan in the church, and we find a governance plan in society as a whole. And yet in all of these spheres, ever since the fall, there has been problems. There has been revolution. There has been coups and wars and people rejecting divine rule and always wanting to rule themselves, self-government, self-worship. And so we're in this. We're not the first ones to to struggle with it. Uh, To give you an example of this, uh, St. Augustine, one of the most important figures in church history, wrote at the end of the thousand-year reign of Rome. Imagine a huge transition in governance in the world when Rome was sacked by the Gauls. Massive change in human history. Augustine wrote his famous book, The City of God, in response to this. And he says this, Accordingly, two cities have been formed by two loves. The earthly, by the love of self, even to the contempt of God. The heavenly, by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. The former, in a word, glories in itself, the latter, in the Lord. For the one seeks glory from men, but the greatest glory of the other is God, the witness of conscience. The one lifts up its head to its own glory, the other says it's, it's, it's to God's. Thou art my glory and the lifter of my head. 
In the one, the princes and the nations it subdues are ruled by the love of ruling. In the other, the princes and the subjects serve one another in love. So he creates this paradigm of two cities, two loves. And in a way, to ask the question even here and in this little series we're going to do for the next several weeks on this subject, where is your hope? 2,000 years ago, I'd say, is it in Rome or is it in Jerusalem? Uh, Today, I might say, is it in Jerusalem or is it in Washington, D.C.? Here in Indiana, is it in Indianapolis? Where is my hope? Is it in these places or is my hope built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness? Now, I raised that question in this series. Did I realize uh, two and a half years ago when we started the Roman series that we would land on this chapter and on this subject in the day that we live in? Did I have any idea there was a pandemic coming? No, I had no idea. We just were preaching our way expositionally through Romans, and lo and behold, we land in chapter 13 at a time like we are living in right now where so much of what the debate is is what is the role of the church and what is the role of the state, and how do these two relate to one another? I have to trust the sovereignty of God because this is either the best time to be addressing this or the absolute worst time to be addressing this. Time will will tell because we're coming now at this subject with our minds spinning with controversies that six months ago none of us even really probably thinking about. The role of government, the wearing of masks, the opening of schools, and government policies in all these areas, and the policing of these policies. We weren't worrying about these things, but oh boy, are we now. And so my desire, and I want to ask all of you to help me with this, I want this series to be light, not heat. Okay? Light, not heat. We got plenty of heat right now. Okay? We don't need no more heat. But we do need light very much. And I would say, judging by the nonsense some Christians post on their social media, there are many Christians who have not thought seriously about what the Bible says is the role of government. So this series, if, if, you're, if you're like, hey, this is going to be good, I'm not trying in this to... Uh, explain to you what Democrats say, or what Republicans say, or what Libertarians say, I want us to know as a church what God says about this, and to align our thinking and our church and the practice of our lives, indeed even maybe our voting, with truths that transcend the petty politics of America, or Brazil, or India, or wherever Somebody might be, because all these kingdoms, they're all passing away, but the Word of God remains forever. I want us to align around that. So if you could just set aside all your talk radio ideology and all of your uh, social media rancor uh, philosophy, and can we just kind of with a clean slate come to perhaps the most important teaching on this subject and just clear the deck and say, okay, God, what do you teach on this? Like, help me to... Rethink this. No amen on that, but that's all right. I'm going to try to convince you, okay? So with that, with that introduction, let's come now to Romans 13. And I can't underscore how important this text, this text, get this, friends, this text along with Jesus when he said, render, not, uh, render to God the thing, or render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Those two texts form the foundation for much of government in all of Western civilization. 
This text right here and that one is the paradigm for so much of the world that we live in. That's a big statement, but maybe by the time we're done, you'll know why I say that. So with that said, let's take a look. Romans 13, verses 1 through 6. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Now, is this all that the Bible teaches on government? No, not at all. And we're going to spend a little bit of time on that very important render to God and render to Caesar text. But it forms the basic structure of a Christian worldview of government and how a Christian functions in society as a citizen of whatever country they're in. And bear this in mind, okay? This is not a text that was written to Americans living in a, you know, a a representative democracy. This is a text that can be preached in China. It can be preached in Vietnam. It can be preached in Spain. It can be preached in Russia. The principles apply to Christians no matter where they are. So try to take off your America-only glasses as you come to the Bible and understand this is a transcendent teaching. It applies across the board. And as I said earlier, this is the pivotal text for an understanding of so much of the government that we live under today. We'll get into that uh, as we go on. So let's talk about God's plan for government, okay? What is God's plan for government? Next week, we're going to look at how, how do I live as a citizen under this government, but what is God, what's the purpose of government? Why is it here? Here's a definition of human government. God's common grace, grace for the organization of human society. God's common grace for the organization of human society. And from that, we see that government is not man's idea. Okay, government is God's idea. From the beginning, God's created purpose was for government on earth. And we see this now as our first point is that government is here to oversee human society. Look again at verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from the Constitution, except from the Declaration of Independence, except for the the, the common consensus of a group of people living in a particular geographical area. No. Where does government come from? It derives its authority and its purpose from God himself. See here that Paul doesn't say, government is the devil. Doesn't say that uh, government isn't God's will, but we gotta sort of live with it in a fallen world. He doesn't say that governmentless society is the ideal and we need to strive for that. No. He affirms the right place of governing authorities in human society. 
And this might be a little paradigm shift for some of you because you may come to this subject and be like, oh, government, right? I just wish it all go away. Wouldn't that be great if we could live in a utopic society where everybody does the right thing and everybody's nice to each other and, and we just sort of function and we get along and we don't have to have anybody putting their thumb on us, paying no taxes. Okay, amen. I'm trying here, okay? I'm trying. Wouldn't that be great to have no societal organization at all? Well, I'll remind you, the darkest days in Israel's history were, Judges 21, when there was no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. What a mess this society would be if there was no government. And human government is God's will from the beginning, even before the fall. Get this, here's Genesis 1.28. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is known as the cultural mandate, this human mandate to, to steward the garden and to, and to have a kind of governance within the earth. And uh, so this is before the fall. We derive from this that even if Adam and Eve had never sinned, there would be human government. It is part of God's purpose. And even authority and hierarchy, which again, some people are totally against, especially these days, we find hierarchy within the triune God. God the Father is the leader of the Godhead. Jesus gladfully, wonderfully, celebrates his own submission to God the Father. Authority is not wrong. It is found within God himself. This authority structure God placed within every sphere of his created order. So we find a purpose and a plan for, for, for leadership within, the, within marriage, within the family, within the church. Governance is not inherently bad, it is inherently good. Remember, God called his whole creation what? Very good. You know, it was pointed out to me recently that even the sinless and perfect angels of heaven have a hierarchy. Ever hear of the archangel as an example? So we take from this again that even if Adam and Eve had never sinned, you would have government. Now, it would be a much different government a very different quality of government with God as the universal king and shorter lines at the BMV, okay? But government itself is good. It's God's common grace for the organizing of society. It provides a structure for how we can function in relationship with one another, in families, in nations, in people groups. And Paul adds here, notice that he adds that the authority that these governing authorities have over us is actually a derived authority from him. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Now, some of you are like, yeah, the politicians I like or that are, you know, coming at this from the same direction that I come from, I can affirm that they have authority from God. No, realize when Paul wrote this, who was the emperor? Crazy Nero. Nero, who would go on to feed the Christians to the lions and impale Christians and light the city of Rome by lighting them on fire, that emperor is the one that he says be subject to. 
And that Peter, in his, in his letters, says, honor the emperor. I think of how many Christians would be appalled if I stood in front here and, 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 and today or five years ago said, honor, honor uh, President Obama. Or now, honor President Trump. Oh, with well, the fiasco it would create. Why? Because we're so politicized. The Bible just says, give honor to those who are in authority over you because their authority over you is a derived, deputized authority from God himself. So, overseeing human society. Second purpose of government is to promote good in human society. Look at verse 3. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. Notice, for he is God's servant for your good. Now, I'm feeding you some hard things to swallow today. I know that. Because as there's the old swag that says, you know, if, if somebody shows up on your doorstep and says, hi, I'm, I'm, I'm from the government and I'm here to help you, uh, what do you do? You slam the door, right? He's an imposter. It's never true. But this is government not the way it's supposed to be. How is government supposed to be? He is God's servant for your good. A biblical government that is functioning in the way that God intended is doing all that it can to promote the good of its citizens. This is a role of government. Human flourishing. These include themes like liberty and freedom, promoting healthy marriages and families and successful parenting and a thousand other categories that government functions in if it is functioning the way that God intended, it is seeking as a kind of mandate for why I'm here to promote the flourishing of its people. Not to do bad, but to do good. Now how to go about that is a subject of much heated debate. But we can agree in principle that a biblical government is seeking to do and benefit its citizens. That's part of its calling, to be a help, not a hurt. As one example, you know, there was a big storm this week. Did you notice? You know, I'm from Iowa, and the, the images from Iowa, they said it was a Category 3 hurricane that went across the state of, of Iowa. If you haven't seen what happened in Iowa, it's terrible. My family there is, you can't, they say you can't believe the damage uh, that's happened there. But uh, here, you know, our, our winds weren't 120. They were only like 60 or 70, you know, here in, in Indiana. Uh, but wasn't it a comfort as most of us went, headed for the basement? Uh, wasn't it a comfort to know that while we're huddled down in the basement, there's government officials who are coordinating with the National Weather Service and with firemen and, and with uh, local services to try to keep the power on, and uh, they're watching, you know, the, 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 the problems and roads that are blocked. Isn't it great to have government when you're in the basement hunkered down in a big storm? I call that good. Okay, I call that good. Isn't it wonderful that as we speak, there are government officials who are keeping an eye on the food chain and trying to make sure that the fruits and vegetables that come from around the world and get on your table are actually good for you. I call that good. I call that good. Aren't we glad that as we, as we speak here today that government is protecting us with military and anti-terrorism and NSA and things we don't even know about? to keep us safe, and to allow us to function in life, I call that good. 
Aren't we thankful that there's oversight of the traffic signals here locally? That there's somebody who's kind of keeping an eye on making sure that not all of the lights are green at the same time? Aren't we glad for that? I'll bet you didn't think about that as you drove today, but what a different day this would be if they weren't doing that. I call that good. Aren't we thankful that there are people that are, their whole focus is keeping an eye on monetary systems and inflation and, and issues with commerce that so affect so many of our jobs and livelihoods. Behind the scenes, they're, they're caring for things. We don't even know what they're doing, but we're glad they're there. I call that, I call that good. These and innumerable other ways government is functioning in ways that we take for granted that allow for human survival and flourishing. So we look at that, we say, man, government is awesome. Aren't we glad for government? And we see in this that the existence of government is not the problem. The sinful human beings actually doing the governing is always the problem. And this will be the case until King Jesus rules the earth. So be very careful not to throw the the baby out with the bathwater and, ah, government. No, no, no. The problem is not the existence of government. It is the depravity of the human heart and what power does in a depraved human heart. So there's a lot to rightly criticize about government, and don't get me started on that. I won't fill the, I'm supposed to preach the Bible, not my opinion, but I have a lot of things that I could certainly criticize about government. But we would be unbiblical if we criticized the existence of government, for this is God's will for human society, and it will be forever. Do you realize on the new heaven and the new earth, there's government? And guess who gets to rule there? The Bible says those that are faithful to him in this life. Some of you might be I don't know, lieutenant governor or something in, in, uh, in, on the new earth. And, and if so, you remember all the, all the friendship times we had together on this life, if you would. All right. So what's the purpose of human government? Oversee human society. Make sure everything's functioning. Promote good in human society. Here is the third, and we're spending a little more time on this one. Government is here to restrain evil and to punish the wrongdoer. Where do we see that? We go back to the text, look at verse two. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror terror to good conduct, but to bad. Look at verse four. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. One of the key roles of government in a fallen world is to restrain evil, indeed to punish the wrongdoer. You see that in these verses. Those who resist government and law, what does he say here? You need to expect judgment. You want to avoid judgment? You want to avoid punishment? Well, then don't do what's wrong. Do what is right, and then you have nothing to fear. He is the servant of God, an avenger. An avenger. Now, it's been a little while. If we didn't have coronavirus, you would have seen this flow very well because we, back in chapter 12, we saw uh, Paul's appeal that we not be retaliatory, but to leave room for God's wrath, if you remember that. 
How does God avenge justice? How does God punish the wrongdoer? How can I as a Christian stand back and go, well, I guess I don't have to take care of this? Well, the Bible says that there are a few ways that God judges and avenges every wrong. The first is the natural consequences of sin. God has so built the moral world that you do wrong things, eventually, you know, we don't break the Ten Commandments, they break us. There are natural consequences to disobeying God's will. Secondly, is punishment from civil authorities, and that's what Romans 13 is highlighting. One of the ways that God avenges your neighbor from stealing your firewood uh, is there are civil laws and there are punishments that come from stealing or whatever. This is part of God's plan. And just to uh, close the circle here, third and fourth are the cross of Jesus, and number four is hell. God avenges wrongdoing and injustice in, these are the four areas. Now we look at, we look at the cross of Jesus and we could say, well, if, if I deserve hell, but Jesus takes care of it on the cross of Jesus, what do we, what do we call that? That's substitutionary atonement, right? He takes our guilt. He, he, he avenged, God avenges our wrongdoing on the cross. But those are the four ways that God does it. And we see in this list that civil government is one of those ways. Now let's talk about how government does this. And I'm, I'm gonna, I'm, this is kind of a teaching message, so bear with me. But there are three ways that government can restrain evil in society. They are laws, the threat of punishment, and the actual punishment, okay? Laws, the threat of punishment, and the actual punishment. Now let's walk this through something that you're probably very familiar with. Why do you drive the speed limit that you do? Or why do, why do you drive the speed that you do, I should say? Okay? Why do we drive the speed that we do? We all wanna go warp speed everywhere, you know, we wanna get there as fast as we can, and uh, nobody's ever accused me of being a slow driver. I'll just confess on that point right now. But why do we drive the speed limit that we do? Well, there is a speed limit. There is a sign that says the speed, li speed limit, and then there's a number. And I recognize that that is the speed limit. Now, I can view that as a suggestion, and many of you do probably. But that's the speed limit. And just seeing that sign, have you ever had that where you're like, you know, you're rolling through town, you're not sure what the speed limit is, and then it's, you know, 25, you're like, whoa, i got to slow down. I didn't realize the speed limit. So the law itself acts as a kind of restraint. This is why they put up these radar signs. Have you seen these as well, where it tells you how fast you're going as you go, and they always have it next to the speed limit. So here's this 35, and it says 45, doop, 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 like that, okay? That is intended to restrain you from speeding. Then there is also the threat of punishment. An example of this would be when you're driving down the interstate, and it says uh, radar cameras in use. And you see that sign, and you begin looking around, right? Like, okay, where are they hiding it? I remember I was driving through Cedar Rapids, Iowa, and, uh, you know, just tooling along, flow of traffic, not thinking about anything, probably going to do some really incredible ministry serving Jesus. <laughs> Month later, I got a ticket in the mail. I had no idea what it, I mean, I had no idea what it was or, you know, and, and come to find out in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, this is a warning to you, they hide them in the, in the interstate overpasses. That just doesn't seem right, does it, right? <laughs> 
But if there's a sign that says, radar cameras in use, it slows people down because there is the threat of punishment. I might receive a ticket and I don't see a camera anywhere. And then finally, there is then the actual punishment. If you've ever been pulled over for a speeding ticket and you know, you have to tell me what that's like later. <laughs> After you get the ticket, how fast do you pull away with the officer behind you? Do you peel rubber as, as you pull away from the police officer? No, you don't. That experience has humbled your lead foot for at least a week or something as you think about paying a penalty of such size. This principle applies to the role of government and it fits all kinds of categories. Crime, corruption, fraud, tax evasion, rape, murder, assault and battery, kidnapping, robbery, and many, many others. I mean, imagine if there was no government and there was, there was no enforcement, there was no police, if there were no laws, what would society be? It would be chaos. It would be anarchy. See also here the level of threat that Paul highlights and I think endorses. For he does not bear the, the what? The sword. The sword in vain. Now, he could have said he does not bear the bullhorn in vain. Uh, he does not bear the blinking lights on the top of the car in vain. But he doesn't highlight those things. He highlights the sword. In that culture, what was the sword? One commentator notes this. The sword was carried habitually, if not by, then before the higher magistrates and symbolized the power of life and death with which they had in their hands. A sword. Now, I've sat at restaurants with police officers near me. And, you know, even, even as a boy, I think I can remember this because you sort of, you know, view them sort of in awe of the, of the police officer. And, and to see the belt with all kinds of little, you know, pockets and things hanging off of it, all, you know, all intended to inflict pain if needed. But I don't really look at those things. I tend to be a little bit more obsessed with the gun. You can kind of stare at that gun. You realize, man, that gun right there of all the things on the belt, that gun can take a life, right? And we see Paul highlighting the fact that it is within the government's rights to elevate the use of force as high as is necessary in order to enforce the laws of the land, to serve and to protect the innocent against the criminal. Now, there are some people that don't like that. There's some people that don't think police should have that. There's some people that think police should have more firepower. I'm not getting into that debate, <laughs> okay? I am merely pointing out that it is the right and the duty of government to restrain evil and to punish the wrongdoer. So today we have in places of the world criminals who are doing crimes and the government is not restraining them. What can we biblically say about that? That is a dereliction of duty for that government. That's part of their call by God, is to do this very thing. 
Wayne Grudem says this, it's interesting that both Paul in Romans and Peter see civil government doing the opposite of what Satan does. Civil governments are established by God to punish those who do evil, but Satan encourages those who do evil. Civil governments are established by God to praise those who do good, but Satan discourages and attacks those who do good. And just to note here that lawlessness, this is the... This is the way Satan operates, is is lawlessness and the promoting of of lawlessness in human society. But God is a God of order, right? And we see even God's will here for human society to be well-ordered, to be governed, to be led. Now, I know some of you are like, okay, get to some application, because I got a lot of things running through my brain, and so do I. But if I could say this, if you watch the news where government is restoring order and protecting the vulnerable from crime, it is doing what it should. And where government is refusing to do so and enabling wrongdoers, it is disobeying God's purpose. And ironically, this month, maybe in some ways more than ever before, we see that divergent approach to the role of government. See also here that Paul praises the civil government, okay, and the civil servant. In our case, this would be like the sheriff, uh, this would be the, 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 the local government official, this would be the judge, this would be the police officer. Notice the quote, he is God's servant for your good. So we say from this, when police do not act as a servant for good, this is against God's design. And we all grieve a terrible example of that in Minneapolis this summer. And we have to say from that, that depravity is found in every single human being, including civil servants. At the same time, those who serve society properly They are doing so as God's servants. They are doing so as uh, according to God's will, and therefore they deserve our respect and our honor. I didn't say that sentence very clearly. Let me say it again. There are those who do not do so according to God's purpose, sadly. But there are many, many, many others, most we would say, who do so and deserve our respect and our honor. And I just think that needs to be said incredibly clearly in the days that we're living in right now. That these are God's servants and they have biblical backing for the role that they play in society and in our lives. Now I'll give you two examples from this summer of just a few ways that we have tried to fulfill this. Uh, Back in June, when, when all of this was erupting, we got thinking about the law enforcement in our church. And for whatever reason, we're a church with tons of law enforcement, and I love that, okay? Praise God for that. We actually have kind of an unofficial ministry to law enforcement in our, in our church. You would be surprised by the number of families that are, that are in law enforcement. But we got thinking about the extreme difficulties that they, are, they and their families are going through these days. And so quietly, we gave a gift to every law enforcement family 
in our church. And we made a card. Here's the card right here. It said this. We know these past weeks have been difficult. Have a night out on Bethel Church. We appreciate you and all you do. And we gave him a gift card to us. We, we gave him a gift card to a local steakhouse. Okay? I, we debated the donut shop or the steakhouse. <laughs> but we went with the steakhouse. Okay? Because we just, we just, I just think of all the challenges that they're facing. Why not encourage them? Another example of this, I sent a note uh, recently to all of these families. I'll just read what I, here's what I said in the note. I hope this note finds you encouraged in your faith, home, and important work in law enforcement. A month or so ago, we provided a gift card to you with the express purpose of letting you know how much Bethel Church respects your role in our community. If you haven't enjoyed that meal out yet, I hope you can sometime soon. We are about to continue our series in Romans from chapter 13. In it, God's word describes rulers and authorities over us as God's servants. Your role in protecting and serving our community finds its divine purpose in these verses. I hope that you can hear these messages and derive their intended vision for your vocation. I want to say thank you again for your service during these challenging days. Our hearts and prayers are with you. Pastor Steve, on behalf of Bethel Church. So to ask the question, why, why does that feel, maybe, I hope it feels in your heart, like the right thing to do? Why does that instinctively roll with maybe the conscience that we have within us? And the reason is because of this truth that we have before us. He is God's servant for your good. Let's do more of that. And let's honor those who God places in authority over us. Now, I know there are some of you online, no doubt, some here in the room right now, you're thinking to yourself, okay, okay, point taken. But what about masks? <laughs> what about masks? And what about government telling us what to do during a pandemic? Well, here's what I have to say to you. You're going to have to join us next week. You're going to have to join us next week. And finally, may it be clear in this church and in this series on the church and state that government can organize humanity, but it can't save it. It can't save it. Government can oversee society, but it can't save it. Government can punish the wrongdoer, but it can't save the wrongdoer. No. All of these things are things that only Jesus can do. And that is why our hope is in the work of Jesus on the cross and why we celebrate Jesus and we sing. We don't sing any songs to government here. No songs to government here. We don't pray to government. We don't look to government as our ultimate hope. Our hope is in Jesus and what he did for us. And that just needs to be emphasized here. Lest we have government too low or government too high, our hope has to be in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I hope that message comes through very clear. Let's make sure our hope is in him. And we're off and running on Romans 13.